He's already been dead and it's messed with his head. It's John's post-life crisis. Welcome to John's post-life crisis. I am John Johnston, founder and manager of Coronation.com. You're Nebraska Cornhusker's site of anticipation as we're in July. And this is the month where the important decisions get made. This episode, we're talking with Scott Docterman. Scott covers Iowa football for The Athletic. Scott, do you have to love Iowa football to cover them? (laughs) No, I don't think so. I mean, I went to college in a different state. I went to college at Western Illinois. So, uh, but I think uh, this kind of like Nebraska in some ways that we have at covering Iowa, one of the oldest bases, um, probably not only in the Big Ten, but in the country, meaning that, uh, you know, I've been doing it since 2006, and yet um, there are probably more people who have been there longer than me uh, than, than shorter. So it's, it's kind of a – I think everybody kind of knows the program, knows it well, but to love Iowa, no. I mean, I think you, as long as you're objective, uh, what, however you grew up, I think it's, it's kind of uh, irrelevant to some extent. Well, I have, I have to be honest and uh, full disclosure, I have hated Iowa football for a very long time, and I'm not even 100% sure why. Uh, in 1980, I'm old, I'm 58. Uh, I started college at University of Nebraska-Lincoln in 1980, and in 1981, Nebraska started the season losing 10-7 to to Iowa. And we started the season 0-2, and, and everybody went ballistic because, oh, my God, Tom Osborne's a loser. Uh, that might be a reason for it. Uh, then there's – I have friends that attended Iowa State, and their hatred for Iowa may have rubbed off on me. And But those are the two – probably the two biggest reasons. And now we're playing them in the Big Ten. They beat us four times. Uh, I go on Twitter sometimes and I, I tend to poke the Iowa fans and enjoy it immensely. But SB Nation is doing this thing about rivalries and the rivalry stuff gets old, but it's still stuff that brings out a lot of response from people. Uh, I'm going to start the rivalry thing with this. I've talked to a lot of other Big Ten people just because, you know, now it's been nine years for us and we had to get used to the Big Ten and it seems that almost everybody hates Iowa. Is that true? And uh, it's because I, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna get Iowa fans probably mad at me for this, but I if if you were to have a big party, let's say, and uh, there were guests coming in from different cliques, let's say it's college or or thereabouts in that age group, Iowa would be the fan where you have about eight or nine guys in a back of a pickup truck each of them carrying in their 12 packs and they would come in and automatically just change the mood of (laughs) the party you know kind of whooping and hollering and uh everybody's like oh they're here (laughs) kind of they've kind of turned into that and part of that is and and we'll start with the west on this one i mean iowa's longest rivalry for sure is minnesota and they have the pig which they played for because it really averted a a potential state war, really. I mean, we were in the 1930s, so it was something that could have happened in, out of that series. Um, it has a century-old rivalry with, with Wisconsin. It's the closest campus to Iowa City and the Big Ten at two and a half hours away. Northwestern, Iowa beat Northwestern 21 years in a row, and, 
and always made sure they knew about it. Um, Illinois and Iowa and basketball, have, that's as heated of a rivalry as there is in the Big Ten. It somewhat dormant, but last year really lit up. Uh, you know, Purdue, Iowa isn't really that explosive, but but really the, uh, you know, the, it's just Iowa does kind of, it, it has this connotation where it, it goes to places, it's, it's a little bit rowdier, and uh, there's a history with each and every one of them. And so it's it's been entertaining um, because I, I've looked at the Big Ten West that it, it's like, wow, what a perfect division for Iowa in that, that it has a huge history with every team but Nebraska, but it shares a border. And uh, But no question the Minnesota series or the Northwestern series are the ones that where the opponents just absolutely hate Iowa because in, in 2002, Iowa finished an undefeated Big Ten season. And then, you know, there were 40,000 fans at the Metrodome, which they nicknamed Kinnick North, by the way. And then they, they tore down the goalposts and tried to take them out of the Metrodome. So uh, that one was uh, pretty bad. And then, and of course, Northwestern was uh, – that that one, that's what Gary Barnett really spurred it because Hayden walked up to him after beating him like 56 to 14 and said, I hope we didn't hurt any of your boys. And uh, – that really kicked off a series. <laughs> so <laughs> there's always something. And uh, so, yeah, I think nobody really likes Iowa, and that's I think that's fine for the Hawkeyes and, and their fans. Okay, if you, if you ask the average Nebraska fan, they would say Iowa was not a rival. And we, we do this thing where, you know, we have this history and we've won championships and we've won conference championships and we're always making fun of Iowa about their empty trophy case. Uh, I, I personally, I think they're a rival just because we hate them as much as we do. But, you know, people would argue with me quite a bit upon that. If you ask the average Iowa fan, what's the answer about Nebraska? It's similar in that that Iowa fans – hate Nebraska and I think and I think Nebraska fans have grown to hate Iowa but there isn't that history and there isn't that big moment moment of pain moment of joy that really kind of captures a rivalry that turns it into something special and unique I mean you look back at the you know they played on Black Friday they you know Nebraska clinched the what Legends Division title in 2012 at Kinnick but Iowa was terrible that year and then you look at Iowa clinching an undefeated season, twelve and twelve and zero in 2015. Well, Nebraska didn't go to a bowl game either, and they weren't very good. And so there hasn't, you know, there have been games that have been interesting, no doubt. And and you know, last couple of years, you know, came down to the last play of the game, and 2014 was was a really interesting game that went back and forth and and what have you. And and you have your Sean Eichhorst statement and stuff. You have all these elements, but I think for proud fan bases, whether it's Nebraska and Iowa, and they're both very proud of their programs, that, you know, do any of those games say, hey, this is one of the 10 greatest games that we've ever had in school history? And that, there's no question. It doesn't even match probably the top 100 for either program. So I think with Iowa that the reason why I, I see it as a rivalry is because of the intense dislike both sides have for one another. And, and then, but as far as rivalry goes, there's there's got to be, there's got to be that moment, and they've had it with you know Minnesota, Wisconsin, even Iowa State, uh, but they haven't really had that with 
with Nebraska yet. I anticipate it will happen. I anticipate once, you know, there's that two-year reprieve of Black Friday and then it goes back. Um, at some point, one or both teams are going to be in that position of clinching the division title and going to Indianapolis and the other team beats them. You know, maybe it's a 10-1 and Nebraska and an 8-3 and Iowa. And Iowa beats them, you know, on a field goal. And it's that, oh, I can't believe we lost to them, or vice versa. Or it's an all-out uh, winner-take-all type of game, which will be really important and big, and both teams are ranked. But it just, you know, there hasn't been that equal importance game that, you know, I know even Nebraska had with Colorado. Uh, you know, but the other part is that I know, I know Nebraska's history with the Big Eight especially, and, and uh, really outside of Oklahoma, no other team compares historically on the field. But it was kind of like everybody else is a junior member, you know, Mizzou and Kansas and Iowa State and K-State and, you know, Colorado, I suppose, to an extent. Iowa doesn't kiss the ring for anybody. Um, you know, in the 80s, you know, seven times the game between Michigan and Iowa determined the Big Ten champion. And so uh, it had more wins than Ohio State did that decade. So maybe it doesn't have the, the national titles, uh, but it does have a history. It does have some tradition and, uh, you know, a coach that was in the Hall of Fame and one that's, uh, you know, one of the five winningest in Big Ten history. So it does have an importance. So kind of getting all the way back to the beginning of is it a rivalry? I think it's getting there. The first one felt like flat champagne. Now it feels like both teams care about the game. Both both fan bases absolutely cannot stand each other. But once you got to have that one big game or a couple of big games to really christen it as a rivalry for both programs. That's a that's an excellent point. I really I hadn't considered mostly because I really enjoyed jabbing the Iowa fan base. And and to be honest with you, when I say Iowa is a rival, it kind of jabs the Nebraska fan base a little bit too. And some people could accuse me of doing that, and they might be right. I won't admit it. Kirk Ferentz, I we argue a lot about him from the Nebraska perspective. I'd say that average Nebraska fan thinks that he's an average coach because Iowa is always average. They have a good season every once in a while, like the twelve and zero season a few years ago. What do you? What would you say about Kirk Ferentz? Well, uh, you know, th- this is the unfortunate part of entering the Big Ten when you did, uh, because that was the most boring period I can ever remember in, in Iowa football history for about a five year period. It was like a well done steak. And you didn't have a, you know, have no, you have no sauce. I mean, there was nothing to Iowa from about 2011 through 2014. It was bland and boring. Last five years, they've been pretty good. Um, you know, they've won 47 games. That's tied for ninth nationally among Power Five teams. They've been ranked three times, uh, uh, top 10 team in, in 2015. Last year, they were uh, 10 and three and, and ranked 15. So they've had some pretty good seasons. Um, under Kirk Ferentz, and and I think, uh, you know, they've been ranked, you know, but I think the thing is, right coming into when Nebraska joined for an eight-year period, Iowa was ranked in the top ten four times, um, you know, from 2002 to 2009. So there was a, you know, he has a 
a history there that that's pretty strong and and then i really think the last five years have been pretty good you know that it was just that four first four years that nebraska was in the big 10 that you looked at iowa and there was nothing other than ordinary about the program it had no explosive playmakers on offense defense it was good not great it didn't do anything you know as far as points goes it occasionally won a big game but it lost some you know, really mediocre ones. Okay, they went to a bowl game three out of four years, big deal. It was just, and I think Iowa fans just finally felt that way and then he had 2015. So overall, I mean, and Kirk's impact, you know, not the present issues notwithstanding, has been extraordinary for this community and for the way they want to be represented. And I think everybody who knows him, likes him, I think he's, you know, he's built a program the way Iowa fans really appreciate uh, because it's built on toughness and physical play along the line of scrimmage. It's a developmental program. They use a lot of local prospects, guys who are, you know, whether they're walk-ons or borderline three stars and turns them into NFL players. Uh, they're in just about every game. They don't, they rarely get blown out. So I think there's a lot that they like and appreciate about him. Of course, there's a lot they complain about him too, and that's understandable. But, but I think by and large, I mean he's been a very good coach. But I do think the Nebraska perspective is colored by the first few years of their Big Ten tenure, where they looked over at Iowa and went, you know, I hate to say it, but you got like Mark Wiseman running the football, and you've got you know no wide receivers to speak of, and you have, and you're looking at this team going, how is this team even competitive? Well. It's because of Kirk, and but there are other issues there. And uh, but by and large, I think it's been a, a pretty good year. And they have beaten Nebraska five straight years and uh, six out of the last seven. So I, I, I think you had, overall, you had to get that in there. Huh? Had <laughs> hey, to... it's facts. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It really, honestly, kind of hurts. Ouch. Um, Coach Ferentz, uh went through some stuff. Earlier, where Chris Doyle was, dis Chris Doyle, who was widely regarded as one of the best strength coaches in the nation, was dismissed. Uh, now you have running former running back Akram Akram Wadley released a very scathing review of his time at Iowa, calling it a living nightmare. I mean, there's been a lot of stuff about racism, and there's been a lot of stuff about the control of what players were allowed to say and what they were allowed to do. I mean, was, was this, what's your take on this? Well, that, that's, uh, that's, there's a lot there, obviously, and I've written a lot about it and will continue to write a lot about it. Uh, first of all, uh, a lot of people ask me, is this a surprise? And was media even negligent in lack of reporting some of these issues? And I would say, when it comes to the racial component at Iowa, yeah, we that was something that we didn't necessarily write about. We kind of discussed it. We discussed it on the, the periphery, which was, you know, from I, I wrote this point several times from 2013 through 2016, Iowa had 10 freshman wide receivers, most of whom were not from this area, and nine of which um, – left, or I guess it was eight, but, you know, nine did not play wide receiver uh, and or transferred with eligibility, and they were unhappy. And a lot of, but what a lot of Iowa kind of masked it, a lot of that attrition was, well, this program is not for everybody. We're tougher here. We're, you know, and they, they carry this 
militaristic type of uh, approach to strength and conditioning and Chris Doyle being at the top, unquestioned leader, um, you know, rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And it really, it, it was kind of a military type of environment. And I mean, I think I remember Mark Banker uh, benching it after one of the games that, you know, they must have a bloodbath at practice. And that's kind of the way they operate as a whole, you know, at least under Doyle. Well, what it kind of did was suppress so much of the individuality of the program that a lot of African-American players believed it was prejudiced against them. And to some extent, they are right. Uh, you know, the, the culture that Chris Doyle tried to create and was very um, demanding at Iowa was really geared towards what a lot of a lot of white players in the state, a lot of farm kids, you know, uh, had grown up with in some ways. You know, the discipline, the uh, the mental, the, the toughness, and and just the the attitude that I think a lot of players are used to. However, if you're not used to that environment and then you throw on the lack of, okay, you can't wear earrings, you can't wear, um, you know, your, your hair has to be a certain way. You have to do, it's almost, again, militaristic. If you're not used to that and it's kind of anti to what you've grown up with uh, culturally, that it does look like it's skewed against you. And I think over time, that has become an issue. And I think uh, what it does is it just kind of drifts the differences between two people. If one person walks in and does exactly what he says, they're praised. If another person comes in and looks a little differently or uh, didn't uh, take out their earring that day or wore a hat and wasn't supposed to, then it looks like you're coming after them and then by and large as the years progress one player seemingly gets more credit more breaks uh, uh, and then that filters over to the playing field and then you know then eventually you know the maybe the player from the other area didn't you know transfer so by and large um, it did look prejudicial against uh, against african-american candidate or players and then you look at chris doyle it he had enough people come against him you know criticizing him for for bias for prejudice for racism that i think iowa had to make that change and but you cannot you know extrapolate chris doyle from kirk ferentz cleanly i mean you're taking a chunk out of kirk ferentz because they've been together for 22 years and chris doyle is the best strength and conditioning coach in the country i mean and the proof is pretty obvious i mean iowa took a lot of average to blow average players and turn them into you know nfl players and two-year starters and, and strong competitors but that said it, his approach was a negative overall and and kirk had to let him go and what is what does this mean going forward? Well, I, I talked to a number and a, a significant number of current players or, or parents, and then their and then former players, just to gauge the temperature on this. You know, to say is it just Doyle? Is it Kirk Ferentz? Is it other coaches? And and really, Doyle was the main issue because Doyle was in charge of the whole entire offseason. I mean, the, the regular coaches couldn't talk to those players and. Yet when you look at, um, you know, Kirk Ferentz, that he, you know, they almost played a good cop, bad cop to some extent. So it, it kind of, yes, they believe that Kirk Ferentz can, can rectify the situation. However, um, there's a lot of eyes watching them. And 
they have to make changes. And a lot of that is in how they deal with the individual, not the aggregate. And um, so far, they've had one transfer, and that was Chris Doyle's son, who was competitive for the middle linebacker starting job. Um, he transferred to Baylor, which is understandable. Uh, so they haven't had any drop-off. They haven't had any players outright demand their transfer. And, and so I guess so far they believe that the change is possible. Um, but this is an ongoing situation. This is not one that you can fix in a couple of weeks and call it good and then go back to the way things were. I mean, I think it's, you know, how does this play out in the summer? How does this play out uh, where we're at? Or how does this play out in the fall? There's a lot there. And I think it's going to take time. And I'm not so sure Kirk's going to last through the whole thing. And I'm not saying he's going to get fired or anything, but it wouldn't surprise me if this is it. This is his last year. Uh, you know, he will be 65 this year. Um, if he can turn it around uh, the culture a little bit, you know, he might feel like he wants to hand it off. Um, you know, so I'm not going to predict the number of years, but I would say at this point, it very well could be the last year for Kirk Ferentz at Iowa, which is, uh, kind of a, a, it'd be an odd way to go, but also uh, could set the table for, for a pretty good successor. Okay. Well, is that successor going to be Brian? No, no way. I can't see that now. That was always the discussion when they brought him in, in 2012, that he wanted to succeed his dad. And, and there was kind of this natural progression and Brian's done a nice job, I think. And, uh, you know, becoming the offensive coordinator in 2017, they had a really, they were bottom of the barrel when it came to wide receivers, and now they have some. And um, their offense is statistically not necessarily high, but I think the efficiency has been pretty good. But I, I don't think so. He's had uh, he's been mentioned prominently by a lot of former players, uh, you know, making allegations of you know insensitive comments at best and uh, racially divisive comments at times, and. And so I don't think that that's a path that Iowa can go down. If that is, it will be very difficult for the fan base to rally around it and probably the donor base as well. So I would I would doubt that this would be Brian Ferentz's opportunity to succeed his father. I think what it, I've, I've recommended this for a lot of years. He is completely different. He is more like Fran McCaffrey than he is Kirk Ferentz in his attitude and his discussion. He's very smart. Um, you know, knows the game inside and out, but, you know, he can be explosive. So I've always thought that Brian should go to a Mac school or, or an FCS school for a couple of years, make some dumb mistakes, say some dumb things where nobody's really paying attention. Because if he says uh, something stupid here or gets in trouble here, I mean, you know, Iowa is just like Nebraska in that we don't have a pro sports team. This is the pro sports team. And so if, uh, if he says something wrong or, you know, goes after somebody, it makes big news for a long time. So I think this, in his case, it would be really smart to go take, I don't know, Eastern Michigan after Chris Coffin leaves and then work there for a couple of years and then see what's out there. And, and then maybe down the road, Iowa's a possibility, but I just cannot imagine handing off the reins after what we've just seen the last month. That's uh, wow, a lot of insight. I mean, does this, you have to have some personal insight to Kirk. I mean, does it, would you think it would bother him if Brian doesn't take over? I mean, that's a lot of speculation. I'd realize that, but I mean, does it, I guess that's the question. Does it bother, do you think it'll bother him if he doesn't have his son succeed him? 
That's an interesting question. And, and we've tried to kind of, you know, he would never outright answer anything regarding his son succeeding him. Uh, we, you know, all of us have tried in different ways to get him to talk about that. One time I did ask him kind of, well, do you think, you know, Brian needs to be a head coach somewhere else before he coaches at a big program? He said he didn't think so because Kirk's path went from Iowa's the offensive line coach to Maine for a couple of years and struggled and, and then went to the NFL for a while and then came back to Iowa. I, and he never really said that. I, I imagine it kind of would because I don't know that Brian would want to spend as much time here, um, which he has now. It's been you know since 2012, without really wanting that to be an, an you know possibility. And I just don't, I just can't think that that's the case. I think what Kirk was hoping for and um, that they would be on a pretty productive path, which really the last few years they have been. Um, that maybe they get one more trip to. Indianapolis, maybe make a, a New Year's Six Bowl, maybe get another top 10, and then he can hand it off and say, look, you know, stability is the key. But but Brian's personality is, is, again, just so different from Kirk's. I mean, Kirk is, you know, has a lot of passion that people don't see, and but, you know, he's he also carries himself very well in front of the public. And, and Brian is, again, he's more like Fran. He wears his emotions on his sleeve. And, and I think it's they would probably, I, I, my belief that they need somebody with head coaching experience to succeed Kirk Ferentz, um, you know, to, to, because otherwise, as you know, now in, in Nebraska, you've been dealing with it for a while. Michigan's dealt with it. Other programs have is if you make that wrong move, no matter, it, it kills you. It kills you as a program. It kills you financially. And Iowa dealt with it from Boris Avishevsky all the way to Hayden Fry. I mean, there's that, 20 years of wandering in the desert um, that they dealt with from 1960 to 19, you know, 79, 80, that, you know, <laughs> it's still kind of hard to dig out of even now. And, and then think about what Illinois dealt with, what Purdue's dealt with, what Nebraska is still kind of dealing with when you go from making, you know, you have an average coach in Bo Pelini to a really bad hire in Mike Riley to, to what Scott Frost is trying to do. It takes time to dig out of that. So if Kirk Ferentz, left and then they hired the you know uh, they go to Toledo and instead of hiring Matt Campbell they hired Tim Beckman Iowa was a doormat for five to seven years just automatically and that's something you just can't live with so in my opinion you've got whatever happens after Kirk whether it's this year or beyond they've got to they've got to go pay high 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 dollar and get the best candidate they can um, and and lure somebody around with with Winning, a winning pedigree and not just because it's the hot coach at that moment. Well, you kind of, you kind of made the segue to Nebraska for me. It's, it's like you're a professional at this or something. Uh, what is your opinion on how Nebraska program looks under Scott Frost and where do you think Nebraska is going in the next two to three years? Wow. That's a great question because I've been anxious. I think everybody who follows, you know, big 10, you know, certainly here, you know, we're pretty cognizant of what goes on at the other schools and commenting on it frequently. And, and uh, Nebraska is one that we just tend to watch as often as we can. And, and I think what we've seen is he, he's, I think he's the right coach. I do think he needs a maturity um, aspect to, to how he approaches the program. And, and the one thing that I have noticed that's been a detriment to Nebraska since it's joined the Big Ten is – 
that it does not need to aspire to be Wisconsin or Iowa. It, not at all. It doesn't have to be them. But it does have to match up along the line of scrimmage with those two teams because though that's the primary tenant in a lot of Big Ten play. Wisconsin and Iowa are emblematic of that, and you have to beat them in order to get to the next level. And how do you beat them? Well, you have to match up along the line of scrimmage. And I don't think Nebraska's done a very good job of that, other than with Bo um, in – you know, maybe at the end of his tenure when they had guys like Vincent Valentine and Malik Collins, they were pretty good at Middleton, I think was his name, um, or, you know, at the end there. They, they they had a really good front wall, but I don't think their offensive line was all that great. I think if, if Scott Frost can figure out a way to build his line of scrimmage play to be where it could at least have a stalemate with those two teams, then Nebraska will have no problem competing for the upper echelon of the Big Ten West, and that puts you in condition in a place where you can compete for the overall Big Ten title. But when you continuously allow 250 rushing yards against these teams and get beat up and down the field like that, and their line is they stop you at the line of scrimmage repeatedly, it's going to be hard to get past that. And I think once you know whether. Scott realizes it um, now, has realized it, and is trying to do something about it or is ignoring it. I think that's really the biggest question as to me as to whether or not Nebraska will be able to assume the position that fans believe it should, and really it should. It should be in the upper echelon of Big Ten West every year. So that's kind of what I think the, where the program is because I think it doesn't really matter if you run you know, a, a boring – offense like Iowa or Wisconsin where Iowa's more zone run based and Wisconsin's more gap based in the run attack. That doesn't matter. You know, what you do with the quarterback if he's a pro style guy, like those two programs or he's an option or, you know, zone read guy, that's fine. You know, that that doesn't matter. But to me it's it's whether you can put you know, up front if you can handle the impact is what's gonna determine everything. And so I look at, you know, the lack of an identity, you know, it's, it's kind of been a problem but I like what, what Scott Frost has done, and I see the enthusiasm there. Uh, I know some fans try to blow off, uh, you know, some of the losses. Well, they just didn't care. Iowa cares more than they do now. I don't see that at all. I mean, I think Nebraska fans are, or players are just as in tune to, to play in Iowa as, as Iowa is to play in them. But I do think, you know, if they can get to that point where, they can stop the run, where they can run the ball when they need to and when they want to, um, then I think Nebraska will be there. And, and as far as Scott Frost goes, some of the comments that I, I've heard from him, in some ways it's almost blaming his predecessors and stuff, and I don't like that as much, but I think he can get past that if they can continue to show growth. I think they got better last year as the season progressed. I think they were fairly close to being a bowl team, not a good team, but a bowl team. And I think they've got that opportunity now. It's just, can you take those steps, in those key areas? Because if they can, I, I see no reason why um, in two years and beyond that they can't be competitive every year uh, to be, uh, you know, among the, a couple of few couple teams in the West to go to Indianapolis. You know, my position on, Current Nebraska is that we have to score 40 points a game because I honestly don't have a lot of faith in, well, honestly, their defensive coordinator. I just, I don't see anything in the defense that I think they came out of an air, a place that they just could score and score and score. And I don't think you can do that in the Big Ten because of, 
I guess, limiting possessions because people really slow the game down when you're talking about like Wisconsin and Iowa and, you know, some of the other teams like a Penn State or, you know, Ohio State could does whatever they want. But, I mean, Nebraska's defense, I guess if you're going to make a comment on a defensive coordinator, what do you think of that, Eric Chenander? Uh, you know, it's interesting because he's in what year, you know, coming into year three. And I think it's really important he has to take that step forward. And, you know, I, and it doesn't matter to me where he's from or what he did or where he went to college. I, I think it's just in some ways it, it's you've, you've just got to teach those fundamentals better. And you know, I've, I've covered uh, I covered a game, I don't know, a year and a half ago. I think it was against Purdue. Um, Nebraska against Purdue, and I just, uh, you know, and that's a tough team to prepare against anyway because they've got such electric wide receivers. But still, it's I, I didn't see the the fundamentals that you that are necessary on defense to be elite or to, even to be in, in a good territory. And I think the statistics kind of back that up. So I I don't know if it's, it's schematics as much as it is the teaching. Um, once. You know, now that they're in year three, and and it's hard without having this spring. This whole year is jacked up, but but I think if they can somehow um, get the uh, you know teach the fundamentals to be able to get off blocks, to be able to be where you're supposed to be, and not fooled as often as they have been, and then I think they'll be okay. But you know, I mean, I thought Bobby Diaco's defense was a disaster. Um, they, they tried with the three four, and it just looked like that. It looked like JV defense to me, and and I'm not so sh- I'm not sure yet. I, I haven't formed an opinion about the way Eric Chenander is, is called it. You certainly see it every week and, and watch it and scrutinize it a lot more closely than I do. But I do want to see what they can do. I I just I think holding up the line of attack is is so critical. And and you know again, kind of going to the Iowa Wisconsin thing. I mean Iowa is a now a 4-2-5. They were a 4-3 for a long, long time. But it's a two-gap scheme where the defensive line, their first um, steps are lateral, and they try to tie up the blockers as often as they can to stop the run. Wisconsin's is so versatile. But they, they were always pretty good. But when they when Dave Aranda got there and they switched to a 3-4, um, you know, the thing people see is a lot of the sacks and a lot of uh, you know, guys like Zach Bond and, you know, before that, Joe Schobert and T.J. Watt. And that. But what people didn't see was their gap integrity was just so incredible. I mean, they were able to, you know, up front, they tied up blockers. And if even wherever they were supposed to be, they were there. They were there all the time, and they fought off blocks, and they got there. So fundamentally, Wisconsin's defense is elite and has been, you know, since they made that switch. And, and that's just and, and Minnesota is getting there too. I think PJ Flex done a really nice job there, both sides of the ball, in, in, a, in making that point. I haven't seen that out yet out of Nebraska. I think there's some talent there, uh, but I also think that a lot of the talent either has been overrated, uh, underdeveloped, or well, a combination of both. Because uh, over you know several years now, really since Bo left, I thought Bo had some good defenses, but. You know, so what that that to me, I, I can't really grade the scheme as much as I can the the way the personnel plays, and I just don't think fundamentally they're quite there yet. All right, I'm going to ask you one more question, and it it's the question we all have to ask because it's a daily struggle and it changes every week and probably every well every day and every hour. Are we going to have a football season? You think? Yeah, we will. It. I don't know if we'll have fans in the stands. 
I don't know how many games we're going to play, but it's too important. You know, that it, it's, it, it might end up being like the scab games in 1987 with, uh, you know, with the pro football when they went on strike, um, because I could see entire units on teams being quarantined because of, of COVID and which just, uh, the, the level of play this year will not be good for anybody. Um, it might come down to, you know, you might see some incredible upsets because some teams may, okay, we don't have a quarterback this week because the entire quarterback room has, has COVID and it's Alabama playing Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt wins, you know, that, that type of a thing. Maybe I'm being a little extreme there, but I do think there'll be football. It's too important. It's too financially. I mean, I, I went through the numbers. Um, you know, even for both schools, uh, la- uh, last year, I believe it was media rights from Big Ten and uh, other sources is right around 51 million for, for the schools in the Big Ten. And then, uh, ticket sales, uh, Nebraska's at right around 30 million, 33 million. Iowa's at 23, 24 million, along with Wisconsin and some other schools. So, um, the ticket sales, you can kind of, grit your teeth and and cross your fingers about but you can't do that with the with the tv money so i think they'll play i hope they can play the full schedule of course i don't know if that's going to be a case i could see it being reduced to possibly division games maybe league only maybe um, a couple of non-conference games i think for an iowa's case uh, all three of their non-conference teams are Within driving distance, uh, Northern Iowa, Iowa State, and Northern Illinois. So that's that would be advantageous for them. But I, I overall, I you know, I, I just hope we have a season, and I hope it, it we play. I, as far as bowl games go, I can't imagine that there will be very many. I think some will shudder for the year. Uh, I I went to the Holiday Bowl last year, and the entire media contingent, including myself came back sick and we all we all wondered if maybe we got it and didn't know it um i can't imagine twenty thousand fans deciding let's go to the holiday bowl this year let's go to the belt bowl in charlotte north carolina you know it's just i think this is the year where okay you go to the rose bowl maybe but the other ones i think this this might be the year everybody lays off that's a a lot of information in uh, a very short time. Like I said earlier, it's like you're a professional or something. Is there is there anything else about Iowa that I haven't asked that you'd like to tell anybody? I mean, we didn't talk about this season for a reason, but uh, yeah. anything else? You know what? I mean, it, it it would be great to talk about football, wouldn't it? I mean, I haven't. I feel like um, I if we get to talk about football, that's like. That would be the greatest day because we just haven't had this opportunity. But no, I think I think the thing that maybe look the, the Nebraska fans maybe not realize about Iowa is that Iowa is not really one complete cohesive state. That there's really three different types of Iowa within the borders here, and one is the Western Iowa. It's, it's those are the people that really interact with. Nebraska fans in, in the Omaha market or in that area, they're probably more tilted to, you know, they're a little bit more, I don't want to be political, but a little more conservative just in those areas. Des Moines is its own market, really. And then Eastern Iowa looks more towards the Great Lakes. It's Big Ten country exclusively. Um, it's 
kind of the outer edge of that area. So if if you were to go to people in Iowa City and say, hey, you know, I want to go to the big city today, they're thinking Chicago. If you say that in, in central or western Iowa, it's it's Des Moines or Omaha. So it's not, you know, out here, and, and I get into this all the time with Iowa State fans, is in Des Moines, the Iowa-Iowa State series is the biggest thing every year and the biggest game and basketball and, and football out out in Iowa, it's a big game for or in Iowa City. It's a big game for one week, and then it's the ne- then the next one's a big one. You know, in Minnesota and Wisconsin are huge games, and Nebraska has joined that echelon too, along with uh, you know some of the traditional powers. Um, you know, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State was a big rivalry for a long time. Um, but so it, it's it, the, I know there's a thought that. A lot of Nebraska fans think that Iowa only thinks about Nebraska. And in Western Iowa, there may be some truth to that. But in Eastern Iowa, it's not that way at all. That And people look at different uh, teams and games and, and stuff. So it's, you know, it's kind of strange covering a team with without a, a number one absolute rival because I think there are, you know, there are four rivalry trophies and all four of them matter differently to different people. But out in, in Eastern Iowa, it's more Big Ten centric than it is individual team centric when it comes to rivalries. That's a interesting point. I guess, I mean, if you think about it, you might realize that about Iowa, Nebraska really is is one giant state. There's this thing with Omaha and Lincoln, and then you know the rest of the state. But you know, Minnesota kind of has that same thing going too, although probably not to the extent Nebraska does. I think I think we'll end there. Uh, I'd like to okay. thank you. It's been this has been very good. I think a very good interview, and learned a lot about Iowa. This has been John's post life crisis. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Scott Doctorman from the Athletic for joining me, and go Big Red. And I hope we have a football season because man, if we don't, it, to talk to you about it. <laughs> yeah, Th- thanks for joining me, Scott. All right. Thanks for having me, John.